All right, let's go to God's Word for us this morning. We are in Hebrews, uh, looking at chapter 9, verses 11 to 22. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 22. It's a lengthy passage, so let's, let's give it our full attention and read it all the way through. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was, was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the, the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray and dive into God's word for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this word. It is your living and active word, and so, Lord, we turn to it for, for nourishment, for our, food for our souls, and for the hope that we need in this crazy and busy uh, world uh, where we often can feel so aimless and confused. Lord, uh, anchor us in your truth uh, so we will see your kingdom your righteousness, and, and find our way uh, to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, our text today begins with the word, but. So it's important for us to, to know what came just before that, but it's connected to the rest of the passage. So a quick summary. In the old covenant system of worship, where priests were established to lead God's people into worship in the tent of God, which later becomes a temple, there you had the first section, the holy place, and the second section, the most holy place, that were set up as barriers between God and his people. And priests would come in with uh, animal sacrifices representing God's people and um, make relate the relationship between God and his people right again. Now these were, as it turns out, things that were meant to be copies and shadows of something better that is to come in the form of a new covenant. And the author says, when the newer 
thing has come, the older things pass away. In chapter 8, he says, they've become obsolete. Okay, what is this better thing that has come? And that's where we land in our passage in verse 11. But when Christ appeared. That's how verse 11 begins. That's the, the big idea. Jesus, the Son of God, coming into the world. He appearing and, and establishing this uh, new covenant, this new promise from God that gives us the inheritance that was promised to Abraham that the people of God couldn't quite hold on to in the old covenant. So what does God do? He establishes new covenant so that he was secure for his people, his presence, his dwelling place, his favor, and the right to be called children of God. He secures for us what we can't secure, what we couldn't secure for ourselves. And verse 15, right in the middle of our passage today, is a great summary of this. It says, Therefore he, and that's Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Promised to Abraham. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, What's really important in that verse and really in this passage is really that little phrase there, a death has occurred. And you, know, you might think that's not all that outstanding. You know, it's easy to just kind of brush by. But if you think about what the author has been talking about in the past few chapters, actually all throughout the book of Hebrews, how in the old covenant system there has been these repeated animal sacrifices offered by this constant replacement of human priests To say that there is a death, a single death, a single sacrifice that can secure this redemption of God's people, that's pretty radical. That's a pretty radical thing to say. As if to say, that's all you need. And that's what we have in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Turns out he came to be this once-for-all sacrifice, once-and-for-all offering. And our passage today is expounding on the, the fuller the meaning of that, the meaning of Jesus' death and what his death does for us. So here's how I've outlined it. First, um, we'll look at the meaning of Jesus' death. The meaning of Jesus' death. And second, we'll think about the meaning of our death and, and how our death relates to his death. And lastly, I want to close by considering the meaning of True satisfaction. What does it mean to be truly satisfied? Okay, the meaning of Jesus' death, meaning of our death, meaning of true satisfaction. Okay? All right. Point number one, the meaning of Jesus' death. Okay, take a look at verse 11 again, where he says, When Christ appeared, he appeared, quote, as a high priest of the good things that have come. The good things that come and make the old pass away have come. And the author gets very specific about what he means by this. He says, through the greater, more perfect tent not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. Okay, what is he talking about here? Jesus brings God's people into the very dwelling place of God, not through the earthly temple, not through the earthly tent, but through his own body, the greater tent, the more perfect temple. And, and he's made this point before, but he will make this point again in chapter 10 where he says the curtain that's torn into that opens our way into the most holy place, that curtain is actually the body of Christ broken for us. The physical 
curtain torn in the physical temple was itself a copy and a shadow of Christ being torn apart for us, leading us into not a physical, symbolic dwelling place of God, but the literal, heavenly, eternal dwelling place of God. And that is not found on earth. Okay? There is no secret portal on earth that leads us into the heavenly places. You know, fictionally speaking, it's, there is no closet to Narnia on earth. There is no tesseract that opens up a portal to different galaxies. The portal came to us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That was our only way to the Father. And it has come. It has come to us. That's the first meaning of this. Jesus' death. Curtain torn into, we have the way to the very dwelling place of God. Here's the other meaning of that. It says here in verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places. And that means no more sacrifices are needed. No more uh, a temple worship is needed. It's once for all. Once for all. And, and knowing how reformational this is for the Jewish Christians, he, the apostle reiterates by saying, not by means of blood of goats and calves, plural, but by means of his own blood, singular. It's once for all. Jesus is the final sacrifice the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sins of his people. Uh, again, that's why chapter 8 says, to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish Christians, you had what was a shadow and a copy of the authentic thing. And that authentic thing has come in Christ. He's all you need. His death is enough. His death is once and for all. And that was the gospel Jesus gave to the 12 disciples and the twelve disciples then began to proclaim first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And the point is the same. Don't go back to the copies and shadows. No one can be saved by those things. Hold fast to the real thing that secures you, not temporarily, not a temporary redemption like the old covenant did, but an eternal redemption. And that is the death of Christ. Hold on to the death of Christ. Hold on to his substitutionary, his sacrifice on your behalf. Okay, that's the meaning of his death. And chances are, uh, just, just by following our series in Hebrews so far, you're quite familiar with that. And chances are, if you've been, just been to church in general, you're familiar with that. That's the meaning of Jesus' death. Now let me move on to the second point and talk about and think with you about the meaning of our death. And it, how, do, how does that tie in with the meaning of Jesus' death? And this point is something, I, again, I think we know is true, but it's one of those things that we don't consider enough. And I want to take this opportunity to do that with you. Pause and consider this. Because here's the thing. If, unless, we, unless we understand the, the real meaning of our own death, the meaning of Jesus' death won't be meaningful. If you're struggling with grasping the weightiness of Jesus' death, just the significance of his death. It doesn't quite as significant to you. It doesn't feel quite as weighty to you. There's a, there's a good chance that's because you haven't considered enough the meaning of your death. Your death. And I want to invite you to consider that a little bit. 
because this is the way we find the sickness behind the cure. Okay. Um, if you don't know what Jesus' death cures, you will not value his death. You will not treasure his death. Uh, he, he described himself as a physician who has come to heal those who are sick. But what is the sickness? Now, unless we understand that, we will not appreciate what he's done for us. So that's the essential question here. Why do I need his death in view of my death? So here, let me kind of go really wide, make a big macro point, and then narrow it down to, to the smaller micro point. When it comes to death, a lot of people today, and I would even throw self-professing Christians in there, take a naturalistic, materialistic view of death. Uh, matter is all there is. Uh, everything is explainable via nature. So according to that view, death is more or less just a natural part of your life. Um, the final oblivion that you enter into. Right? And it's more or less something you should embrace. It's a natural part of your life. And especially when you consider that billions of billions of years, according to naturalism, uh, death had to occur for you and I to even be here today uh, and, and get on top of that food chain. Um, death is all the more something we should embrace because nature is doing its thing through death, through a lot of death. In other words, there is nothing wrong with death. You may feel that way, there's nothing objectively wrong about death. And the more rational thing to do, according to naturalistic materialism, is you ought to embrace death, welcome death. But here's the, here's the other take, right? Here's the alternative to that, the reason for death given to us in Genesis chapter 3 that is completely different from this view. Death was never a part of nature, according to the Bible. It invaded nature. Right? Death came in because a divine warning wasn't heeded. A warning that if man disobeys the giver of life and abuses his life's purpose, then life will be taken back from him. That would be the penalty for his sin. And that's what happens in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, defy God, and define their own good and evil, God kept his word. He punishes them by subjecting them to this thing that they didn't know was possible, death. So there are two competing ideas here, right? According to naturalism, death is your natural companion. According to the Bible, death is our unnatural enemy. And here's the question. When you think about your life, your thoughts, your decisions, which is more reflective of your belief, death as a natural companion or death as an unnatural enemy? It's probably the second, or it's probably death as our unnatural enemy. Rather than embracing death, you, you, right, like Dylan Thomas says, we rage against it. We rage against the dying of the light. We do not go gently into that good night, right? But here's the thing. Did you know that the only way you can rationally hold on to that view and live like that is if you believe what the Bible says? It's a penalty for your sin. What the Bible says about death being an invasion of nature rather than being an innate part of nature, that's the only rational basis for you to fight against rage against death. Otherwise, you should see it as an innate part of nature. 
if you hate death and call it your enemy, you got to start from the Bible. Otherwise, you don't have a rational way of resisting it, resisting death, or helping those who are suffering and headed towards death. Did you know that philosophers actually have raised this question, like, why do human beings die so, so abruptly, so quickly? Uh, really, that's something they think about. We're, I mean, if, and, and it's interesting if you think about it. We're top of the food chain, and yet compared to other living things, we die rather abruptly. We have a rather short lifespan. Uh, have you heard of the, um, my, my, my son will love this, the ocean quahog clam? It's basically a hard shell clam. It's a clam. Do you know how old the oldest clam we have on record is? 500 years old. A clam, 500 years old, capable of renewing its own matter and energy for five centuries. We're made of matter and energy. Why don't we get to renew our own matter and energy for five centuries? Or take the great bristlecone pine, the tree, the oldest tree we have on record, with a lifespan of 5,000 years. 5,000 years. 5,000 years of renewed matter and energy to sustain itself. Why are we human beings who munch on clams? Why do we live only, at best, seven to 80 years if we're lucky? And on top of that, why are we so uniquely subject to the, these efficient ways of dying, wars, poverty, starvation, and, and uniquely vulnerable to disasters and diseases? Why is human life, as Thomas Hobbes put it, so poor, nasty, brutish, and short? And science doesn't give us a rational answer to that. That's the way it is. And here's another thing. We're the only ones worrying about it, too. <laughs> we're, we're the only ones contemplating this. Right? There is no thing club you know, among, among chimpanzees where they ponder about the brevity of their existence. We wrestle with that existentially. We're the ones worrying about it. Our mind and our bodies, our emotions react to it. Uh, there was an article I read recently written by a group of counselors. It's titled, Why Am I So Tired? And in it, they, they talk about how during this season when we're constantly hearing things in the news that cause us to, to feel burdened and, and weighed down, especially news about death, death of community people, right? Uh, people who are in hospitals, and death of celebrities, people who are well-respected in our communities. When you're constantly hearing this stuff, there's a certain collective trauma that you gather, and that makes your brain stay on this constant high alert. It's like an alarm that's just going off, never silencing itself. And so your body's always working. It's always working even when you're not working. So naturally, Right? We, f we always feel tired. We always feel we over, we're overworking, overexerting ourselves. And so part of that is, you know, uh, part of understanding that is just being gracious to yourself and to others, understanding that there's strong feelings that, that you will get during this season, 
and quick you know, bouts of just weariness and exhaustion. Because your brain is doing what it's supposed to do. It's, it's reacting and defending against all the death around you. But it's, at the same time, also not very normal because it's causing our bodies to malfunction. It's causing us to malfunction. It's as if, it's, it's as if our body's telling us we were meant for a different kind of world. Why is that? Why, why are we so bad at death and so troubled by death? Why do we resist it like it's our enemy? The Bible tells us why. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. Death is not that you're naturally just born with as a part of the natural course of human life. Death is your judgment. Death is a verdict on your sins. It's the wages of sin. And as harsh as that may sound, it actually is the most rational way of understanding your resistance against it. That it feels so wrong. It's because we are under the judgment of God's law. We're spiritually sick and need a cure. And therefore, because, because the sickness is the wages of sin and death, in order to deal with this problem of death, we need something that can deal with our sins. De- pay the wages of sin. And that's why he says in our passage today, without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So the ultimate question is, what can wash away my sins? Answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood was shed so that he would die the death that you and I should have died. He bled so that he would die a substitutionary death for us so that we might be redeemed from the forgiven of the penalty for sin and we would have eternal life. This is where the the meaning of Jesus' death and the meaning of our death come together. Why did Jesus have to die? Because the wages of our sins is death. And he's come to save us from death. And if you look at Romans 6.23 and look at the rest of the verse now, you will see this very beautifully summarized. For the wages of sin is death, yes. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so there's the understanding of the meaning of your death. It's the wages of your sins. And that leads to the understanding of the meaning of Jesus' death, God's gift to you so you would have eternal life. You have to come to grips with this, that the blood that is flowing in your veins right now will not last, will not save. Now, there's a funny line or scene in the office where Michael Scott talks to Jim and uh, he's trying to invite Jim out to dinner, and, and Jim's like, I'm busy, I have to go give blood. And that, that's his excuse. It's his common excuse to get out of having to hang out with Michael. And Michael's like, how often can you give blood? Because he's heard that excuse so many times. Like, how often actually can you give blood? And, and Jim's like, is there a limit? And Michael says, well, your body only has a certain amount. <laughs> which, is, which is funny. But 
as, as you know, uh, silly as that may sound, he's actually getting at something, right? He knows that our blood isn't forever, right? We do reproduce, but it's, it's not going to last you forever. Whatever is flowing in our veins right now won't keep us alive. Do you know that, that you are a clock winding down? But Jesus' blood, that's everlasting. And when we receive him and his gift of life, his blood will cleanse us and renew us with his divine matter and energy, so to speak. More than, more than 500 years, 5,000 years, more than the climb or the tree. Right? The, the, it's like the lines we sing in the hymn. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's grace than when we first begun. That becomes our reality if the blood of Christ is renewing you, has renewed you. And the good news is this. This is offered to us at this very table in front of you. This is offered to us like a cup of wine on a dinner table. And it's free. The blood that Jesus shed on the wooden cross is like wine now offered on a wooden dining table on the table of the Lord's Supper. It's not the blood of animals that save you. It's not the physical temple or the physical tent. It's nothing in this physical world. It's not even the physical cross. It's what Jesus offered us on the cross. His blood. His blood is what saves. And it's nothing but His blood the blood of the Messiah, the blood of the Son of God, the blood of the Word that became flesh, the Lamb of God. That's the blood that renews us. Now, does all this talk about blood weird you out? Probably, maybe, possibly, okay? I think Christians can, can understandably appear very strange to non-Christians sometimes because... If, especially if they're not familiar with the, with the Bible, because we sing about blood, we talk about blood, we even take a cup that we say represents someone else's blood. Right? That, I mean, if you have no biblical background whatsoever, that's, that's creepy. Right? Understandably so. What is the deal with these people? Why are they so obsessed with blood? Now, I think one helpful way, there's a lot we can say, uh, in addition to what we've already said, that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I think another helpful way to understand this better is by putting it in a context, in a very important context in the Bible, and that is the context of a relationship. Remember, this is all about God reconciling a broken relationship between him and his people, between him and his bride. And when you look at it in that context, the talk of shedding blood and dying for one's lover, it's not so far-fetched. Here's a modern example for you, a secular example for you, from someone who's as mainstream as it gets. Bruno Mars. If there's a spokesperson for our culture today, I'm going to go with Bruno Mars. Now listen to these lyrics from one of his many, many hits, one of his many, many Billboard number ones, uh, the song titled Grenade. You heard that song before? 
Now, what I want you to listen to here is the story that's unfolding between him and his lover, okay? I'm, I'm not going to sing it. I'm just reading the lyrics, all right? Gave you all I had, and you tossed it in the trash. You tossed it in the trash. Yes, you did. To give me all your love is all I ever ask, because what you don't understand is I'll catch a grenade for you. And then the refrain comes, yeah, 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 like amens. This is actually kind of like a worship song. It's like, I mean, I think we're singing this later. It's like, you know, does the Father truly love us? He does, right? It's the yes, right? We do. It's the refrain, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then listen to this. Throw my hand on a blade for you. Ouch. I'll jump in front of a train for you. You know I'd do anything for you. And then listen to this part. I think this is the bridge. If my body was on, was on fire, oh, you would watch me burn down in flames. You said you loved me. You're a liar. Because you never, ever, ever did. But darling, I'd still, I'd still catch a grenade for you. What is he saying? What's he talking about? He's talking about what it takes to love a liar. He's talking about what it takes to love someone who tosses that love in the trash. Someone who's been unfaithful to him and is still being unfaithful to him. What's that like? It's like throwing your hand on a blade. In other words, it's like shedding blood. Or it's like catching a grenade or jumping in front of a train. All of which means loving someone this unconditionally means your death, the loss of your life. And what is our culture's reaction to this? Oh, what? That's so bloody and archaic and ancient. No, it's billboard number one. It's for consecutive weeks. Millions of copies sold. I think we get it. I think we get it. We celebrate the concept of a sacrificial love, a dying love, a bleeding love, which, which is another song, by the way. Leona Lewis, check it out. Uh, bleeding love. We celebrate this love. And we celebrate it when a man expresses it to a moon. Why not God to man? Why is it weird to celebrate that? And here's something else, too. When, when, when Bruno Mars says, I'll throw my hand on a blade for you, that's metaphorical. For Jesus, it was literal. He was pierced on his side. Nails penetrated his hands and feet. And, and when it says, I'll throw myself in front of a train for you, I don't know about you, but doesn't that kind of make you wonder, what's that going to do? Like, what, what are you going to do? All right, what, what are you, Superman? Right? Wouldn't that just run both of you over? <laughs> what's the point of jumping in front of a train for someone? That was sort of the plot hole in the song for me. Right? Um, but see, for Jesus, he stopped something that was on its way to hit you like an unstoppable freight train, and that is the wrath of God. A part of what the author of Hebrews is saying here is no amount of animal offerings you, you hurl at that train called the wrath of God. And no, no amount of human priests who jump in front of that train for you will actually stop that train from killing you 
and them. It would just run you both over. So what, what is it that we need? Christ. We need Christ who hurled himself at the wrath of God and what happened then? He consumed it all. He consumed the wrath of God so there'd be nothing left for us. So it says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no wrath of God for those who are in Christ, those who are represented by him, the better tent, the better curtain, the better temple, the better high priest, the better lamb, the better blood. You have to see how this meets you in your death and saves you. And here's the last point. Because, because the meaning of his death meets us in the meaning of our death, our true satisfaction is found in him and him alone. And that means you have to turn to him. And that means you have to constantly go to him for the soul's rest that you crave. It's in his gospel, found in his word. The one portal that came to you that opens up the way to God that's where you find true rest. And you taste that through your personal worship, your daily walk with God, your prayers, and the fellowship of the church and the worship of the church. This is how we taste and see. And this is how we're truly satisfied. But one of the things that we struggle with when it comes to pursuing this with spiritual disciplines that I just mentioned is um, oftentimes we, we get to a point where we tell ourselves, I'm going to do this. I'm going to read God's word. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go out to church. I'm going to, I'm going to meet the pastor. What we don't ask ourselves often enough is by saying yes to this, what am I saying no to? That's the illusion. The illusion is we can say yes to all these things when we haven't said no to these other things. That just doesn't happen. Whenever you want to implement a new habit or a new discipline, you have to ask yourself, by saying yes to this, what am I saying no to? And you have to be very specific. What am I actually going to say no to? There's a researcher at NYU named Bennett Foddy, and he discovered that there's something common about these, um, these uh, games, phone games, that become very successful and, and um, people get very hooked on. And it all comes down to this thing call, he calls juice. It's the juice. Okay, what is juice? He defines it as a hidden layer of feedback within a game that doesn't appear to be part of the game's rule, but is really essential to the game itself. So, for example, in Candy Crush, which is like a crazy successful game, and, and for millions of people, it's like a really addictive game, you will play it, and, and you hear these, these reinforcing sounds, for example, um, and flashing lights when you, when, you, when you have an achievement. And there's a narrator, like an underlying narrative voice that celebrates with you and praises you for every achievement. That's the juice that people get hooked on. It's not about lining up the candies. It's, it's all that underlying stuff. And what they've studied, what, what they found is that the brain actually really reacts to that, and the juice is what releases the dopamine that gets you hooked. That's what makes it so pleasurable. And the same thing research shows is true for the way we interact with social media. Uh, the, the likes, right, that's the juice. The, the views, how many people have viewed this? That's the juice. How many people have shared this? That's the juice that gets you hooked. That's what we're going for. 
And most of all, what they found is the ultimate underlying reason why we turn to these things and we're thirsty for this juice is because we need a sense of validation and acceptance. Validation and acceptance that we do not get in the world, in the real world. So the digital space becomes a safe place where you get what seems to be unlimited validation and acceptance. The world, the real world, is not so validating, is it? The real world is not so accepting, is it? But our souls yearn for validation and acceptance, and we'll go to anything for it. We're thirsty for it. And the problem with these spaces we turn to for Jews is they don't satisfy us. Instead, they addict us. And the, the high-intensity stimulation, the constant, only gives us very, very lows, the, the withdrawals and the disappointments and the feeling of emptiness. They leave us hungrier than when we first were exposed to these things. You see, from the times of ancient Israel, God has given his people a place where they can receive from God this spiritual juice. A place where they receive his validation and acceptance. And that's what verses 19 and 20 tells us about. That Moses was given the command to take the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, all this liquid, to sprinkle them as a there's a Presbyterian term for you, <laughs> to sprinkle them. And that was to reassure God's people, this is the way home. This is where you are fully known and fully accepted for who you are. That was the place where they had God's reassurance in a world that gave them no reassurance whatsoever. In the desert, in territories surrounded by enemy nations, in the place of worship, that's where they found their validation and acceptance, in God. That was to be their quote-unquote Jews. That's the point of verse 20 where God says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Look here. Come here and drink and, and be satisfied in your soul. And this command, you see, finds its fulfillment later on in the new covenant in Christ who says at his institution of the Lord's Supper, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, not the blood of animals, my blood. So when we come to worship or when we partake in the Lord's Supper, which I hope to do very soon with you, when we take part in this, what we're essentially doing is we're being fed the spiritual juice, the spiritual water, what Jesus calls living water, that satisfies us to the point where we say it's not out there in the world, it's found in God, in Christ alone. And that means you have to say no to the world. You have to say no to the things that leave you empty and addicted. And, and on the other hand, point your, your attention, your life to Christ. And that's where... In word and in prayer and worship, you begin to taste him more and more. His blood as if it's wine. As, as the poet George Herbert put it, love is that liquid, sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. 
You turn to your Savior who bled for you and find in Him, find in Him the validation and the acceptance that your soul craves. And, and when you re-encounter His grace for you, His forgiveness for you, His unconditional love for you, and you feel His nearness to you as you say no to, to the things that have been causing you to be unfaithful to Him, things that have been distracting you from Him, you will taste, you will taste Him, His goodness and see that he alone is good. The world is nasty, brutish, but when you turn to Jesus and you abide in him, you'll say, it is well with my soul. So turn to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we turn to you as hungry and thirsty people, and we turn to you as people who have been left disappointed and empty by places, things, people, in this world that really cannot, cannot satisfy our souls. And we do ask for your help in turning to you, in returning to you, and coming to your table, coming to your presence, to be nourished by you, to be fed by you, to drink the cup that you offer us, to receive your, your gift of your righteousness, to receive your acceptance, to receive your adoption, and find our rest in you, and help us to do this by the power of your Spirit dwelling in us. Renew our strength so that we would hold fast to Christ our High Priest, and we pray this in his name. Amen.